You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a PhD holding historian, a professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that makes legit, seriously researched American history come to life through entertaining stories. Join me for a chronological telling of the United States story, from the revolution to fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way from 1776 to the early 20th century. Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. Today, episode 144, The Defense of Fort Ticonderoga. Last week, I introduced the leaders of the British Army who were tasked with moving down from Canada to Albany, New York. The commander, General Burgoyne's first goal was to conquer Fort Ticonderoga, the Gibraltar of North America. Both sides seemed to think that it was the key to the region. It had been where French General Montcalm had defeated a massive British force under General Abercrombie during the French and Indian War. In 1776, General Guy Carleton took one look at the fort and turned around, thinking it would take too long to lay siege to the fort that year. The Americans in charge of the fort, however, had a very different view. For starters, there was no united chain of command. General Philip Schuyler was the senior general in command of the Northern Army. In fact, following the retirement of Artemis Ward and the capture of Charles Lee, he was the most senior-ranking major general, second only to George Washington himself in the chain of command. As you may recall in earlier episodes, Congress had promoted General Horatio Gates to major general in May 1776 and sent him to take command of the Continental Army in Canada. Gates arrived just as the British were chasing the last of the Americans back into New York where the more senior Major General Schuyler remained in command. Gates spent most of his time over the rest of the year trying to undercut Schuyler and take full command of the Northern Army. In December 1776, Gates left Fort Ticonderoga with part of his army to join Washington in Pennsylvania. Gates had been corresponding with General Lee about what a dumpster fire they thought Washington's command was and were feeling each other out about a possible replacement for the commander. After the British captured General Lee shortly after these conversations, Gates continued down to Washington's headquarters. When Washington begged him to assist with the attack on Trenton, Gates begged off, claiming he was too sick. Instead, he rode down to Baltimore to badmouth Washington to Congress. After Washington's great victory at Trenton, Gates decided that badmouthing Washington was not going to work at the moment, so he went back to badmouthing General Schuyler. In March, Congress had agreed to give command of the Northern Army to Gates, supported primarily by the New England delegation, who generally distrusted the New Yorker General Schuyler. The blowback from this change caused Congress to reverse itself a month later and return Schuyler to command in April. Rather than sucking it up and working with Schuyler, Gates left New York again 
and went back to Philadelphia to complain more to Congress. He was still in Philadelphia in June when the British began to move down toward Fort Ticonderoga. Schuyler did not spend much time at Ticonderoga either. Most of this time, Schuyler was in Albany, working on logistical support and other matters, including relations with the local Indian tribes. General Benedict Arnold had also left Ticonderoga after the 1776 fighting season ended and headed back to Connecticut. That left Colonel Anthony Wayne in charge of the fort. Wayne, as you may recall, was a Pennsylvania officer who had led a regiment to Canada as reinforcements after most of the army in Canada had been captured at Quebec. Wayne had played a leading role at the Battle of Three Rivers, see episode 95, before retreating with the rest of the army back to Fort Ticonderoga. As other officers moved south to other commands, Wayne remained in command of Fort Ticonderoga over the miserable winter. Out of desperation, he refused to release soldiers even when their enlistments were over. He personally punched a few soldiers who went on strike. Over the winter, there was no food or clothes for the men. They did what they could to survive, and little more. The fort, which was already in terrible condition, fell into even worse disrepair. In commenting on the region, Wayne wrote, It appears to be the last part of the world that God made, and I have some ground to believe it was finished in the dark. That it was never intended that man should live in it is clear. In noting that men simply were not meant to live in such land, made worse by the dead bodies still littering the forest from the French and Indian War, some of the soldiers used the skulls for drinking cups and the shin bones as tent pegs. The command structure in the fort itself remained a mess. General Schuyler had attempted to oppose discipline, but the New England soldiers resented the New York general's attempts to impose rules on them. The internal rivalries came out several times over the winter. Massachusetts Colonel Asa Whitcomb's son was a cobbler by trade and attempted to address the shortage of shoes at the fort by setting up a cobbler's bench in the colonel's quarters. The Pennsylvania officers took offense at a fellow officer working at a trade, which was considered demeaning. Pennsylvania Colonel Craig and others broke into Whitcomb's quarters, destroyed the cobbler's bench, and physically attacked Colonel Whitcomb. The fight attracted a crowd, and soon Pennsylvania and New England troops were in a full-scale brawl with each other. The Pennsylvania soldiers escalated the fight by picking up their arms and firing on the New England soldiers, wounding several. Despite the behavior, there were apparently no courts martial over this event. Colonel Craig and his Pennsylvania men apologized and killed a deer, which they presented to the New Englanders as a feast to make up for their behavior. In February 1777, when a militia company demanded to go home at the end of their enlistment, Wayne responded by punching one of the men in the face and telling him he would not leave until his replacements arrived, and if they did not arrive, he would be there forever. He held the rest of the company at pistol point until they accepted his orders to remain. Despite these problems, that same month, 
Wayne was one of a record 10 men promoted to Brigadier General in February. In April, after receiving word of his promotion and orders to move south, Wayne happily left the fort behind and marched his men to join Washington's army in New Jersey. The same week that Wayne got his promotion to Brigadier General, Congress also promoted Arthur Sinclair from Brigadier to Major General. Sinclair had had a meteoric rise since joining the Continental Army as a Pennsylvania colonel in January 1776. He received promotion to Brigadier General in August and then to Major General in February 1777. Sinclair had been born and raised in Scotland. He served as a lieutenant in the regular army during the French and Indian War, where he saw action at the Siege of Louisbourg and the Battle of Quebec. After the war, Sinclair settled in Pennsylvania. There, he became the largest landholder in the western part of the state. He was able to purchase some of the land after marrying the daughter of a wealthy Boston family at the end of the French and Indian War. He also received land grants directly from the king for his service in the war. Sinclair was an early supporter of the Patriot cause and was one of the few Pennsylvanians with real military experience when the war began. His first mission after raising a regiment was to go with General Gates to Canada, arriving just in time to help with the retreat back into New York. Sinclair had spent the summer of 1776, where, after Gates commended his actions during the retreat, received his promotion to Brigadier General. General Sinclair then headed south to join with Washington's army in New Jersey, arriving in time to play a key role in the battles of Trenton and Princeton. This helped secure his promotion to Major General in February. With that promotion came the responsibility to return to Fort Ticonderoga and prepare for a possible British attack. When St. Clair arrived in June 1777, he immediately began writing that the fort was a mess, undermanned, had a lack of entrenchments, and was generally in no condition to defend against an invasion. Because there were no communities of any size in the hundreds of miles of surrounding wilderness, it was difficult to obtain any supplies or get much help in putting the fort back into defensible condition. General Gates had been confident that the British force in Montreal would not invade, but instead would ship out for New York City in the spring so that they could supplement General Howe's advance on Philadelphia. Gates himself spent most of his time in Albany, where he could keep an eye on his rival, General Schuyler. Despite Gates's belief that the British would not invade New York, by the time Sinclair arrived in mid-June, the British fleet had already left St. John's. He did not know it yet, but he had only days to prepare for the attack. Far from impregnable, the fort had many problems, even if it had been well-maintained and fully garrisoned. For starters, the main defenses were on the south side of the fort. Remember, the fort had been built originally by the French to defend against a British attack from the south. More importantly, there were two large hills near the fort, which an enemy could occupy and then fire into the fort. During the French and Indian War, when the French defeated an invasion by Abercrombie, they did so from those hills, not from the fort itself. 
A year earlier, Continental Engineers had identified Rattlesnake Hill as a more defensible position. They also identified Sugar Hill as a key height that would, if occupied, threaten the fort itself. These weaknesses had been identified in the summer of 1776, even before Gates and Sinclair had left the area to join Washington's army. Leaders had decided to rename Rattlesnake Hill Mount Independence and rename Sugar Hill Mount Defiance. But beyond giving them those cool names, they did little to secure these areas against potential dangers. Over the winter, General Schuyler had issued orders to occupy Mount Independence and to build a bridge from the fort to the mountain. Continental Colonel Jeduthan Baldwin built an impressive bridge between the fort and Mount Independence. Although not fully complete by the spring, it was complete enough to serve as a footbridge over the water to move men and light equipment back and forth. At some point, another engineer, Thaddeus Kosciuszko from Poland, arrived on the scene. However, Kosciuszko seemed more interested in criticizing Baldwin's work and kissing up to General Gates than contributing much to the defenses. By the time Sinclair arrived in June, the Continentals had occupied Mount Independence including placing several cannons there, and were using the footbridge to move back and forth. They had not, however, occupied Mount Defiance at all, believing it too steep to allow the British to mount cannons there. On June 13th, the Continentals captured two British prisoners, who said that General Burgoyne was already on his way, with thousands of soldiers, and would be at Fort Ticonderoga in about two weeks. They also informed the Continentals about St. Ledger's move from the west toward Albany. Unnerved by this information, General St. Clair was not sure whether to believe them. There was a good chance they were British spies sent to spread misinformation. He sent them on to Albany under guard for further interrogation. A few days later, two soldiers walking to the sawmill were jumped by about 30 Indians. The attackers shot, stabbed, and then scalped the two men. The only reason we have a record of the number of Indians is because one of those two men survived by pretending to be dead as the Indians scalped him and stripped him. The severely wounded man then crawled back to camp to give news of the attack. When a lieutenant took about a dozen men to track down the Indians, they ran into another ambush where several more men were killed or wounded on both sides before both withdrew. The presence of hostile Indians made clear that the British invasion force was probably not far behind. The Indians in the woods also made it nearly impossible to send out scouting parties to look for the enemy without fear that they would be ambushed, killed, and scalped. Even so, some daring men did do some scouting. On June 23rd, Sergeant Heath reported British ships and an enemy encampment about 40 miles north of Ticonderoga. He also noted that Indians in the woods were, as he put it, as thick as mosquitoes. For the next week or so, poor winds and a driving rain prevented the British fleet from advancing. But everyone knew it was just a matter of time. The Americans sent out several more scouts, but they all failed to return, presumably killed or captured. General Sinclair knew that his fort was woefully understaffed to withstand a full assault. 
He had between 2,000 and 2,500 men fit for duty, but thought he would need at least 10,000 to hold the fort against such an attack. He had begged for reinforcements earlier, but had been refused. General Washington had responded to Sinclair that he believed, like General Gates, that the British and Hessians in Canada would be removed in the spring and taken by ship to New York City to support General Howe's offensive. Even after it became clear that the British in Canada would attack Ticonderoga, Sinclair remained reluctant to call out the local militia. He had such little food stores on hand that bringing the militia to the fort would only cause them to run out of food much faster. By June 30th, the British were at Crown Point, about 11 miles from Ticonderoga. Sinclair finally sent out a last-minute call for militia, but doubted that they could arrive in sufficient numbers to be of any assistance. The British and German army under Burgoyne advanced from three different routes. General Redazel and his Germans moved down the east shore of Lake Champlain toward Mount Independence. General Fraser led an advance force, followed by General Phillips and the larger force of British regulars, moving down the lake's western shore. General Burgoyne commanded an armada of ships on the lake with a battery of large cannon ready to reduce the fort's walls. Even with such a large force at his disposal, Burgoyne could not completely surround the fort without leaving some weak spots where the Americans might break through and retreat. At a council of war, Burgoyne suggested that they should at least send troops around the fort to cut off the major roads available for an American retreat and rely on the Indians to prevent any attempted retreat through the woods. Fraser thought this was folly, as the Germans on that side of the engagement would not be good at moving through the woods and swamp necessary to reach their objective. Instead, he recommended moving the British forces down to the west and attempt to take the high ground on Mount Defiance, or what the British were still calling Sugar Hill. From there, the British could fire on the fort without much danger to themselves. Burgoyne rejected this option because it allowed the Americans a line of retreat. He wanted to capture not only the fort, but the Continental's entire northern army. Burgoyne ordered the Germans to march on a circuitous route to the east of the fort, moving to cut off any American retreat. Meanwhile, the British on the west side would take some time to cut out the roads to move their cannons down toward the west of the fort. They would start by capturing Mount Hope, just northwest of the fort. The Americans had sawmills there and controlled a bridge on the Portage Road leading to Mount Defiance. Now, I know describing all this can get confusing. If you visit my blog at blog.amrevpodcast.com, I've included a map that shows the different movements toward Fort Ticonderoga. On July 2nd, Fraser sent an advanced corps of about 600 regulars, with more Canadians and Indians in the front of the force, to capture Mount Hope. The Americans saw them coming, set fire to the buildings, and retreated back behind the fort's picket lines. The advance force was only supposed to take the hill and await more support. However, Fraser's Indians got a little drunk and decided on their own to rush the American picket lines. This led to a skirmish. The Americans held their lines against this rather small force, 
and used cannons loaded with grape shot to force the attackers to withdraw. The skirmish lasted only about an hour before Fraser was able to get his troops pulled back to Mount Hope. While Fraser was writing up a report on the incident, General Phillips arrived on the scene to berate him and express his annoyance that he had ruined the element of surprise now that the Americans were well aware of their position. Fraser, however, convinced Phillips that they had taken defensible high ground and now threatened the fort itself. The position also prevented any American retreat toward Lake George. Phillips agreed and supported holding the hill now that it was taken. Over the next couple of days, Fraser and Phillips looked up at Mount Defiance, thinking that if they could place a few large cannon up there, they could control a field of fire over both Fort Ticonderoga and Mount Independence. In their current position on Mount Hope, the British were still in range of the American cannons and took several casualties as a result. On Mount Defiance, they could fire from a higher elevation without the enemy being able to return fire. Now, you may ask yourself, why did the Americans leave this hill unoccupied? As I said, several officers had looked at it months earlier and mentioned it as a possible weakness in the American defenses. But the hill was so high and the incline so steep that commanders did not think it would be possible to drag cannons to the top. The British believed otherwise. General Phillips famously said, Where a goat can go, a man can go. And where a man can go, he can drag a gun with him. The British removed two 12-pounder cannons from the Thunderer, and by the morning of July 5th had both of the guns, weighing a few tons each, mounted on top of Mount Defiance. They only had to await the slow-moving Germans on the other side of Lake Champlain to cut off the final escape routes for the garrison at Ticonderoga. Once the Germans were in place, they could open fire. The Americans would have nowhere to go and would have no option but to surrender. Sure enough, on the morning of July 5th, the Americans noticed smoke coming from the campfires atop Mount Defiance. A closer examination revealed redcoats moving about on top of the mountain. The defenders knew they were in serious trouble. Inside the fort, General Sinclair held a council of war to decide what to do next. The commanders decided that the invincible Fort Ticonderoga was in fact already lost. Their next steps would be to do what they could to save the garrison. Next week, the Americans heed the old adage, he who looks and runs away lives to fight another day. This episode is supported by Factor. Let's face it, preparing good and healthy meals is a lot of work. As a result, I often end up eating just junk food. Factor offers a better solution. You can get pre-prepared, chef-crafted, and dietitian approved meals delivered right to your door. You'll have over 35 different options a week to choose from, including keto, calorie-smart, vegan, plus veggie, and more. It's going to be less expensive than takeout, and since it's pre-delivered, it's already home waiting for you when you get there. The meals are 100% ready to heat and eat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed, and you can schedule the number of meals each week that works for you. Best of all, it tastes good and is good for you. 
As a special deal for our listeners of the American Revolution podcast, you can go to factormeals.com slash ARP50 and use the code ARP50 to get 50% off. That's code ARP50 at factormeals.com slash ARP50 to get 50% off your first order. Hey, thanks for sticking around for the American Revolution podcast after show. Thanks to Michael Mulhern for his continued support of this podcast as a Robert Morris Circle supporter on Patreon. I really am grateful for people like Michael and others who have stepped up to help cover the costs of running this podcast. It means a lot to me, especially in these tough times. Michael's not even from the U.S., but enjoys the American Revolution anyway. Although most listeners are from the U.S., there is a pretty decent international representation among you guys. I'm glad to have you and pleased that you are interested in learning more about an important part of American history. Michael is also a panelist on Retro Computing Roundtable podcast, which talks about classic hardware and software and how to keep those systems working in today's world. You can learn more about that at rcrcomputing.com. I also wanted to give a thank you to Paul Kallenberger, who made a generous gift to me via PayPal a few weeks ago. I really appreciate it. Everyone's kind gifts and donations can help keep this podcast going. Now, some of you also may have noticed that this same day of this week's episode release, we have a sponsor mentioned before the episode begins. Scott Rank from History Unplugged podcast is supporting the show. I met Scott at a podcasting convention a couple of years ago. I started listening to his History Unplugged podcast then, and I love it. He has great shows that cover all aspects of history. He even recently did a mini-series covering key battles of the American Revolution. Scott's not just a podcaster. He's also a history professor and an author of several books. You can probably download the History Unplugged podcast wherever you find the American Revolution podcast. You can also check out Scott's website at historyonthenet.com. Now this week, I introduced the fort commanders at Ticonderoga in the months leading up to the British attack. General Anthony Wayne and Arthur St. Clair were both from Pennsylvania and would cross paths many times during and after the war. Sinclair would not get another independent field command after losing Fort Ticonderoga. However, he did serve in administrative roles through the end of the war and was present at Yorktown. After the war, he had a political career, including service as the president of the Continental Congress, the same year that Americans voted to replace the Congress with the U.S. Constitution. He would go on to become commander of the U.S. Army when General Washington was president. He would lead an Indian war in the Northwest Territory, and he was actually defeated by a Native American force at the Battle of Wabash in 1791. That pretty much ended his military career. He did, however, continue to serve as governor of the Northwest Territory. But his political career also came to an end a few years later, during a debate over making Ohio into a U.S. state. He argued that the people of Ohio, quote, are no more bound by an act of Congress than we would be by an edict of the First Consul of France. This quote, which some might regard as treasonous, 
resulted in President Jefferson forcing him to resign as territorial governor and retire from public life. Sinclair moved in with his daughter in Pennsylvania and died in poverty. General Wayne also headed west after the war. He took command of the army after President Washington had forced General Sinclair to resign. Wayne led a punitive expedition against the native tribes that had defeated Sinclair at Wabash. Wayne famously won the Battle of Fallen Timbers in 1794. This forced local tribes to cede most of Ohio to the Americans and ended British influence in the area south of the Great Lakes. General Wayne also established Legionville in western Pennsylvania as the first training facility for U.S. soldiers. He died a few years later from complications of gout while still serving on active duty. His most lasting legacy might be the establishment of a fort deep in Indian Territory, which became Fort Wayne, Indiana. Another fun fact, an early 20th century actor named Marion Morrison wanted to change his stage name to Anthony Wayne in honor of the general. But the studios thought Anthony sounded too Italian. So he went with John Wayne, and the rest is history. Anyway, this week's episode, Generals Wayne and Sinclair prepared Fort Ticonderoga to defend it against the British, but did not have much luck. I hope it's not a spoiler to mention that the British would capture the fort which is something I will discuss next week. This becomes the base of British operations for the Saratoga campaign. As I've already mentioned, I think Saratoga was probably the decisive turning point of the war, so I will be talking about it over many episodes over the next few months. For those of you who want to read more about it, and in even more detail than my podcast gives, my book recommendation this week is Saratoga, Turning Point of America's Revolutionary War by Richard Ketchum. This book, first published in 1997, is one of the most widely read books about the Saratoga Campaign and is probably already a part of most book collections for people who like to read about the American Revolution. Ketchum, of course, is a famous author of American history books and articles, including at least a half a dozen about the American Revolution. His book on Saratoga is nearly 500 pages, not counting notes and index, and covers the campaign with great attention to detail and is very well written. Sadly, Mr. Ketchum passed away in 2012. But if you want a good overview of the Saratoga campaign, Ketchum's book is a great place to start. My online recommendation this week is another podcast. This one actually has nothing to do with the American Revolution, and it's not even a history podcast. This week, I recommend the Paradox Podcast. This is run by a medical doctor, Eric Larson, who talks about all sorts of issues, mostly political and other issues, related to the modern practice of medicine. Eric has been a long supporter of this podcast, and I've enjoyed his as well. As you might guess, the last few episodes have covered the coronavirus and the spread of the pandemic. So, it's a great place to learn about the situation from the perspective of a medical professional. If you want to check it out, it's available on all major podcast platforms, or go to the website at theparadox.com. That's T-H-E-P-A-R-A-D-O-C-S dot com. 
And of course, as always, I've put a link to the site on my website at amrevpodcast.com. Well, that's all for this week. I hope you will join me again next week for another American Revolution podcast. What's something you learned in history class that you feel like wasn't the whole truth? Better yet, what's something you didn't learn at all that was omitted completely? That's what I like to call redacted history. My name is Andre White, the host of the Redacted History Podcast, the place where history's forgotten events, heroes, and villains get their story told, one episode at a time. The Redacted History Podcast. Real history never dies. Stream the Redacted History Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts.